Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nakta Wimshi. Chapter 25, Part 2. I heard all that, said Annie Chuying with a sad expression, and I find it really sad. I'm sorry, I know I said the wrong things to them and made it all worse. No, not at all. I wasn't saying anything about you. I was just going to tell you that I thought you were exemplary in how you replied, without any show of irritation or annoyance. I was just wondering whether I should go back inside and try something different. I was thinking of telling them that I just wanted to be amiable and that I had no feelings of rancour toward them. That, although very well motivated, would just create further animosity. I don't think there's anything you can do. There's just something... I think they have a low level of psychological health, as I was saying earlier. They'd probably like nothing better than to have an ongoing argument with you. If you did that, you might end up proving exactly what they want to prove about you. So what do they want to prove? That you're an interloper with bad intentions who should be told to leave. Ah, well, I think they may be right in one way, that I'm an interloper. I mean, I'm not a Kagyu practitioner, and maybe I should have known I'd cause resentment. If that was the case, Sami Ling should have stipulated that this time with Gyalwa Karmapa was only for Kagyu practitioners, she smiled. And of course, if Gyalwa Karmapa doesn't object to your being here, then I don't see what anyone else has to say about it. Ah, yes. Well, yes. I was aware that there was much I could not reveal to Annie Chuying, even though I knew her to be thoroughly trustworthy. I was feeling the loneliness or isolation of my situation. It dawned on me that this could only increase over the years. There were secrets I had to hold, and the possibility of a growing number of antagonists, just as Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche had indicated. Why did I imagine that I would not mind being vilified and subjected to animosity? I knew why. I'd been in Bodenath with Dudjum Rimshe, and sitting with him in that wonderful room, everything seemed so utterly, utterly possible. But now, as an incognito tulku and lone nakra who had no real context, I was merely an anomalous apostle of aberrance. I suppose, I grinned sheepishly, I'll just have to accept that some people have an existential philosophical need to demonise me. It's a shame though, because I really would be friends with them at any point and forget the past. It seems that there ought to be a way to explain that I'm innocuous. That would just be to play into their hands. Chukyam Trumpa Rinpoche told me once that if you discuss a subject with a fool, 
you become a fool. If you discuss a subject with a bigot, you become a bigot. If you discuss anything at all with a debater, you become a debater. I've always found that extremely valuable. Do you mind if I write that down? She didn't, so I did. And then she left me to practice. I called after her, however. Thank you very much indeed, Ying. It would have been quite difficult here without your friendship. I spent the afternoon in the garden reciting mantra and finally the time came for dinner. I walked back to the house with a fairly silent mind but eventually fell to pondering. My time was running out at Samiling. My time at Bristol Art School was also running out. My twenties would be running out before too long. There'd be some radical changes and something about being at Samiling seemed to be pivotal. My mind turned to debt and I knew that the end was swift approaching. I reflected on how easy conversation was with Annie Churying and how difficult it was with debt. It seemed strange that it was easier to converse with a nun than with my own lady friend. Annie Churying could also challenge my view without being dismissive or disinterested in my opinion. I wondered what she'd look like with hair and that wasn't too hard to imagine. Someone like Annie Churying, who wasn't a nun, would make an ideal partner. That thought made me laugh because it reminded me of the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film, Bedazzled. It's a comedy version of Faust in which Peter Cook is the devil and Dudley Moore is some kind of Faust. Dudley Moore is given seven wishes and in each he tries to win the lady he admires. Peter Cook, however, grants each wish with a twist that undermines the wish. In the final wish, Dudley Moore attempts to devise a plan that the devil can't pervert. He requests that he and the lady he desires should be two genuinely good people who lived in isolation from the false glitter and glitz of big city life. They would always be together and they would always love each other. Unfortunately, Dudley Moore fails to specify the gender he desires to be in terms of his wish. The devil turns him and the lady into nuns in the order of St. Beryl, leaping Berylians, who glorify their founder by springing into the air from trampolines. My mind was a peculiar arena of possibility, where profundity and impulsiveness, sobriety and whimsicality, insight and delusion oscillated. I'd spent several hours in mantra recitation and minutes after heading for the house, I found myself involved with ludicrous conjecture based on a comedy called Bedazzled. Still, it was all part of my experience of existence in the West. And as long as I avoided taking the comings and goings of my conceptual mind seriously, I was not likely to get into too much trouble too much trouble. 
yes, too much trouble. It dawned on me in imperceptible incensements that there was a degree of romantic attraction in my apprehension of Annie Turing. We certainly enjoyed conversing, as our conversations were both lively and mutually supportive. She told me that she felt somewhat alone as a nun. She'd never been a hippie and had come to Vadriana from a background in psychology. She initially wanted a conventional career in the conventional world. She wanted marriage and children. She'd wanted most things that normal people want. But then she'd read Meditation in Action, followed by Mudra and Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. A friend at university had given the first of these books to her and she'd been so absorbed by it that she searched for other books by Chögyam Trumpa Rinpoche. I'd had a series of relationships with young men who seemed entirely unsuited to relationship and that's what made me take the step of becoming a nun, Annie Chögyang had told me. I'd gone to see Gyalwa Karmapa at Rumtek in Sikkim as he's the head of Chögyam Trumpa Rinpoche's school. An ordination happened to be taking place and at that time celibacy seemed a great relief. I had no desire to run the gauntlet of an ongoing series of worthless relationships in which I was objectified and treated as an adjunct. What a shame, I thought. What a waste when I was somewhere in the same country. I wondered momentarily what would have happened if I'd said that. Not that I'd had any real impulsion to express such a sentiment. The only point on which I was certain was that I would avoid doing or saying anything that was in any way capable of being interpreted as inappropriate. I had no sense in which Annie Turing might be having similar ideas because she was evidently entirely committed to the vows she had taken. It was possible, therefore, that I was entirely safe from impropriety, and I could make sure that she was entirely safe as well. After having been treated with such marvellous kindness by Gyalwa Karmapa, the last thing I wanted to do was conduct myself, as my father might phrase it, as a depraved lout. I remembered the words of Dudjan Rinpoche. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. Garent and Lydia were sitting at their usual table when I entered the dining hall, and so I joined them. I hear you've had two private interviews with Gyalwa Karmapa, Garent exclaimed gleefully. Yes, I've been exceptionally fortunate. What happened today? Oh, it was about my dreams. After the empowerment, we were all asked to sleep with kusha grass under our pillows and to recount our dreams to Gyalwa Karmapa the next day. So there were a few things in my dreams that Gyalwa Karmapa wanted to discuss with me. He also wanted to explain a few things in relation to Bodhanath because... 
he knows that I'm going back there to see Kyabjo Dujum Rimshe. He mentioned that he and Dujum Rimshe used to have dinner with Dilgo Kyantse Rimshe and the Chini Lama because I had a dream of him with Dujum Rimshe in an old house. He said it was the house where they used to have dinner. I said nothing of Chugyam Trumpa Rimshe. It seemed to be something that I shouldn't mention to anyone else. I made no mention of Arrow Lingma either. Wow, that's far out, I must say. You just had a dream about those llamas, beamed Lydia. And it turned out to be something that really happened. Well, it's not quite as amazing as all that. I've lived in Bodenath and visited the house, Dudjum Rimshe's house there. And I saw Dilgo Kiense Rimshe and the Chini Lama in 1971. So it's not so surprising that meeting Galua Kamapa shouldn't spark something like that. Still, it must be amazing to have a dream like that and have Galua Kamapa comment on it. Yes, that's certainly true. I'm massively lucky. It's certainly made up for those nasty comments you got from a few people. Yes, more, far more than made up for it. I think it's pushing me to some sort of turning point in my life. Are you, Geraint asked, staying for the rest of the time that Galua Kamapa is here? No, sadly, I have to leave tomorrow. I'm afraid my money won't stretch to staying longer and I have the summer term at art school about to start. I suppose I can't have all the good luck, and some people here need a spell without me to cast a blight on their experience. Never mind about them. They're responsible for their own karma. True enough, but all the more reason I should wish them well. Good way to look at it, Lydia commented with the faintest of smiles. But they've still got their karma and they will have to experience the effect of those causes. Well, I commenced, karma is how we see the world. It's our perception. And from the pattern perception, we react according to what we are, to what we see. If I see someone as an enemy, then I have to attack. If I see someone as simply troubled in some way, then I can wish them well. What about cause and effect? Geraint asked. The cause is the perception and the effect is whatever action arises from the perception. Right? I've not heard it put that way before. I think I have, Lydia mused. It was from a Theravadin monk who gave a talk on karma at the Buddhist Society in London. Have you studied Theravada then? No. Well, I read a book once called Experiment in Mindfulness by a man with the imposing name of Rear Admiral E.H. Shattuck. It was the first book I ever read on meditation. So, pondered Geraint. What happens about the results of actions in terms of everything being karma? Everything is karma in the same way that everything you see is as you see it. 
That makes your experience of existence good, bad or indifferent. It's not that stubbing your toe is karma. It's how you feel about stubbing your toe. It's not your wealth or lack of it, but what your wealth or lack of it means to you. One wealthy person can be miserable, whereas another can be happy, and likewise with poorer people. Buddhism is primarily concerned with intention, and in terms of sutrayana, developing more altruistic intentions. So it's not your actions, but why you act and what you want to get out of your actions.